Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading sustainability thinkers and practitioners, scientists, economists, NGOs, business leaders and investors. We discuss the sustainability imperative, the key challenges, the latest thinking, and what's working in sustainability, resilience and regeneration. I'm very pleased on this, the 100th episode of the Sustainability Agenda podcast, to welcome Dr. Anne Paulina to the podcast. Anne is a Yimardawara Marnan, which, translated in the Nikana language, means a woman who belonged to the Mardawara Fitzroy River in Western Australia and an adjunct senior research fellow at the Nalungu Research Institute at the University of Notre Dame. Anne has worked for decades on issues of environmental and cultural protection in the Kimberley of West Australia. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Polina, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Thank you. So in my language, I was just acknowledging that we're doing this interview on Yaru country and in my language, I said that um, I am a woman who belongs to the Mudawara, the Fitzroy River. Um, I was also saying that it's a great opportunity to be able to speak and share this story on the podcast today. And thank you for the opportunity to have the conversation. Well, I'm very much looking forward to talking to you, Anne. And a, a lot of rich, rich material. I've looked at some of your work and, and really important issues that you're you're fighting for and so forth. So you introduced yourself in your language there uh, and you talked about the, Yar- the Yarrow land. What, what is that about, that protocol? Why do you do that? One of the reasons why Indigenous Australians always preface any of our conversation with the acknowledgement of what we call acknowledgement to country. We believe that country, the earth, is alive it is an active actor in our daily lives and in everything we do. So before we speak on anyone's land in Australia, we always acknowledge the lands and the waters and uh, just pay respect to elders past, present and emerging. I understand. I understand. Very good. Now, can you tell us for your podcast a little bit about your background and, and what you do? Okay. I am what they call in Australia a traditional owner, which means that my heritage is Nyiginawarua. So I am a Nyiginawarua woman. I'm also a woman who belongs to the Fitzroy River. So from that perspective, I was just introducing myself in terms of my traditional heritage. Now, uh, many people listening may not be aware, but Indigenous Australians are the oldest living culture in the world. And so, as I said, this is a great opportunity to share some of that wisdom, particularly given the uh, context of what we're talking about, which is sustainable development. So, yeah, just um, introducing myself and why we do that sort of protocol, because we believe the land is alive. It is a sentinel being and it holds memory. And so we need to honour and give respect to that. Wonderful, wonderful. What, What do you do, Anna? I work very hard to create peace. (laughs) Um, One of the things is I do not describe myself as an activist. I describe myself as an actionist. 
So as a traditional owner, um, my career pathway started in nursing and in health. But since then, I have uh, acquired multiple qualifications. I have a master's in public health and tropical medicine. I have a master's in education. I have a master's in Indigenous social policy and the arts. I have a PhD, um, which I wrote, which showed the intergenerational trauma and violence to four generations of my family. And I use that as a context to show that it's actually deficit public policy, laws, legislation, which has created the position that many Aboriginal people find themselves in our land. So um, I'm a biophysical and a social scientist. I have a PhD. I'm just completing a second PhD, not to show off, but I'm of the view that the more I know, the more I don't. So I've just finished, um, I'm in the process this month of completing a second PhD, which is all about the Fitzroy River, because I feel the story that's coming from our lands, our waters, our people, is something that I think is a global story. So um, from that perspective, I'm the chair of six independent Indigenous nations who've come together to stand in solidarity to protect the Fitzroy River, the Matawara. And um, we've just gone through a whole process of working together and coming up with very strategic plans for how we believe the river should be protected, but also what does sustainable development mean in 2020 and how do we bring Indigenous voices, Indigenous wisdom into right-sizing the planet and looking at where we should all be going globally post-COVID? Very interesting, very interesting. And I want to talk to you about the, the Fitzroy River and the work that you're doing there. But just maybe also just to set the scene a little bit, clearly we're in the middle of a, a, a COVID crisis right now. We're in the middle of various environmental crises with social and economic challenges. What in particular is on your mind, Anna? Oh, you know, as I said, I work across multiple platforms and at multiple levels, but I'm glad you asked me that question because um, last night I was invited to sit on a panel, an online panel with some members of parliament as well as uh, other people, and one of the things that <laughs> I can't believe is actually happening in our nation state is that there's a very big conversation in regards to what should the new economies be post-COVID. And one of the big issues that I'm quite fearful of, actually, is the fact that our national government is looking at investing in a huge pipeline that runs from the East Coast to the West Coast because they want to capture shale gas, fracking. Now, where I live in the Kimberley, apparently... I understand from the conversation I had last night that the shale gas that we have here in the Kimberley is almost equal to the whole volume of shale gas in the USA. So this is something that multinational companies and our governments are looking to explore and exploit. And it is quite shocking when we see how the Anthropocene has created a very vulnerable situation in which we are all at and the best thing that this government, our government, can come up with is the opportunity to possibly create the largest man-made destruction in the world. 
What we are talking about is the possible destruction of a Canning Basin system, which is 550,000 square kilometres onshore and another 110,000 square kilometres offshore. So if we frack the Canning Basin, it will leave the Canada Tar Sands project as a minuscule event. So I am very, very concerned that the best economic trajectory that our nation state can come up with is to frack the lands and the living water systems of citizens who still do not know what is being touted as our greatest investment going forward post-COVID. Shocking. That's the scale. It's extraordinary. Now, the Fitzroy River, can you tell me a little bit about the river and what your relationship with the river is? Yeah. So, I belong to the Fitzroy River. So, in terms of property rights, the river owns me, but we don't see it in a property relationship. We see it in a relationship that we are born into the river, we are of the river, we are for the river. And as traditional owners, as custodians, as guardians of this amazing cultural and water landscape, we have been managing our estates from the beginning of time and we've been doing a pretty good job at it. So basically what we currently have is very big plans to look at um, development of the Fitzroy River, which is likely to impact seriously on traditional owner lifeways, livelihoods, and our ability to transition to the new economies, particularly a green economy that is conducive to culture, science, and conservation. So at the moment, we're at a crossroads where we are being told that our precious river that we have guarded from the beginning of time is possibly going to be made available for water trading, for water markets, um, and it just is quite a serious matter because what we're saying is that we've seen and the world has seen what has happened with the Murray-Darling Basin and the minimal approach that we want as traditional owners in the region is to have a statutory framework that can bring everybody together so that we can collectively look at how are we going to and if we are going to develop this most precious resource, which is water. So at the moment, we're at a crossroads. We've got extensive development being planned for the Fitzroy River. Um, Traditional owners from the Matawara Fitzroy River Council have been in conversation. We have just finished developing what we believe a strategic plan should look like in terms of what the new green economies and the transition to new economies should be, could be, must be. And yet, we're seeing that it still seems to be business as usual with the dirty fossil fuels, um, extensive agriculture, which will only deplete the water resources and, and destroy our quality and quantity of life on a system that we've managed from the beginning of time. So we're at a little bit of a crossroad, but there's a lot of hope being generated because what we're saying is that this Fitzroy River is globally unique. There is not another river like it anywhere else on the planet. It is extremely diverse. It also cradles nine different Indigenous nations who have lived in harmony with this land and living waters from the beginning of time. 
And what we're saying is that we believe that there is a different way to pursue and continue with uh, sustainable development into the new economies and beyond. Well, that's very interesting. I'd, I'd like to talk about, about uh, your, your vision. Just before you talk about being an owner, also what I, I hear you saying is it's, it's really about a custodian role. Uh, owner, I guess, has another sense as well, maybe the way we use ownership. But what you're really talking about here is a, is a, is a deeply custodian stewardship type of relationship, Anna. Yeah, no, exactly. Look, um, you, you hit the nail on the head there because it's all about framing. And when you hear the word owner, it means that it's almost like a property right. You own the river. Well, in fact, it's a reversal. So we are custodians, we are guardians, but we also hold first law. What we're talking about is law of the land, Aboriginal people's customary law. What are the rules for living in coexistence? What are the rules for building values, for building ethics? for building a code of conduct that holds together and bonds a civil society? What are the laws, the rules, the stories that shape how we as human beings, particularly as Indigenous Australians, as the first Australians and the oldest living culture in the world, what are the stories that we can learn and share that we can bring into regional governance? How do we organise trade? How do we manage um, to support our young people, to transmit knowledge and all of those sorts of things? So it is what we call first law, customary law, law of the land, not law of man. And there's a very big difference because what we're talking about is the principles of an ethics of care and the way we see communityism or the way we live in harmony with each other which is the absence of a lordial title, which means the absence of having a hierarchical structure, but rather a, a true democracy that allows collective wisdom and invites and encourages and support ordinary people to bring their vision, their stories, and the lessons that we learn from engaging life. How do we bring that all together so we can ensure that we live in coexistence, one with each other, but also with our fellow non-human beings. And how is this first law uh, coded or uh, kept and, and how is this, uh, you know, wisdom and approach preserved? Um, this, yeah, in the Kimberley we have two concepts around first law. The first law we call Wallangari law, which is the law for the whole of the Fitzroy River. It tells through song, through stories, through dance, the formation, the creation of the Fitzroy River, how our ancestor came and travelled through the landscape. As he travelled, he named the birds, the animals, the fish, all of these things. He gave us the language that we have um, in my nation. But as he zigzagged and travelled through the whole of the landscape, as he moved through the different nations, the story is the same but the language is different. So we continue to have this Wallangari law, this first law. Um, it is transmitted through song, through dance, through ceremony, through trade. And so this law still exists today. And what the traditional owners have done is we're in the process of making a very big uh, documentary, a very powerful documentary to show this integration and the triangulation of all of these knowledge systems 
still coexisting and how we're saying that this law, these values, these ethics are not just a, a law for law's sake, but a law to show how we can live in harmony with our environment in a coexistence way. So it has a relevance in modernity. It's still practised, it's still carried, and I have been publishing extensively around this first law. So we believe that the river is a living uh, being, an ancestral being. It not just has a right to life, it has a right to live and flow. So that's the basis of our um, responsibility. You are correct in terms of saying we are custodians and guardians, but we are obligated under our first law, our customary law, to ensure that we uphold the values, the ethics, the code of conduct for ensuring that this living system is, is able to continue to live and flow but produce the multiple benefits that come with the deep relationship of sharing the river country with human and non-human beings. Well, that's very, very interesting. And I know you've written as well about um, the indigenous cultural approach to, to, to water governance, to collaborative water governance. And I, just can you talk about that a little bit and how that might look and look different compared to maybe some of the more modern approaches that, uh, that, 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 that we see, modern approaches to governance and to uh, use of, of resources? Yeah, I, I think the first thing is to be aware that Indigenous people, first peoples in this country, we believe that land, water, people and communities are intrinsically entwined. We can't separate. But yet when you look at the planning process, when you look at public policy, when you look at legislation, all of them are siloed approached. So you have somebody dealing with land, somebody dealing with the environment, somebody dealing with the water. So there's not an integrated approach in terms of how we should be governing and managing our commons for the greater good through an integrated approach. So one of the things, as I said earlier, is that we're quite fearful of what happened in Australia's largest river system, which is the Murray-Darling Basin. We are very concerned that even with statutory frameworks and ways of getting integrated planning, that river system has almost been totally destroyed. So one of the things we're saying is that we as Indigenous people are living in the modern world. We understand that there is a need to look at how do we coexist with our fellow citizens, fellow Australians, and indeed the world, because we are not only national citizens, we are global citizens. And what we're saying is that there needs to be a better way for people to come together and bring in collective wisdom in regards to how we problem solve and look at the complexity of the regions in which we live. So from a cultural governance perspective, we have had this governance of law from the beginning of time, which regulates the way we trade, which regulates the way we continue our circular economy, which regulates the way we maintain ceremony. So we've had this system of governance from the beginning of time, which was horizontal, which showed that nobody was on top of anybody else. It's actually called an allodial title an absence of a lord dictating what happens to the citizens of the people. 
So we as Indigenous people have had this law system, this way of governance, this circular economy, this way of trade, this way of ceremony and sharing from the beginning of time. And when we see what's happening around the world globally in terms of COVID and to some extent how we've ended up with failed economic systems that have been created because of excessive consumption and greed, we kind of think that maybe some of this complexity right across the world, but particularly in our region and in our nation, could really benefit by bringing the wisdom that we have, one, as guardians, caretakers of our commons, but bringing in first law, the idea that what we should be thinking about is that the greater good is the greater good of humanity. And how do we bring in business models and ways that we look after and manage our amazing resources, not just in this country, but globally? How do we do this differently? What does a new economy look like? What does the old one, what can we learn from that? So basically what we're saying is that we believe when we see the state of the world that it's currently at, um, you know, I've used the term and, and I use it quite frequently, is that we've moved from climate change to climate chaos and we're spiralling out of control very, very quickly. And what I'm saying to people that I speak with and share my story with globally is that it's time for people to see that not only do black lives matter, but if we are to survive as a human species, we need to consider that black and ancient Indigenous wisdom needs to be factored into how we right-size the planet. One of the things somebody said to me was, um, you know, there's this group of people going around the world from Extinction Rebellion, um, you know, frame, and the conversation that went went something like, oh, well, people, some of the people within the uh, Extinction Rebellion believe that... Um, if the humans are so stupid that they will allow their self-destruction, the planet will right-size itself and it will heal and transform itself without humans. And I had to have a pause and I thought about it and I thought, yes, the earth is a living system. It will have the capacity, it does have the capacity to right-size itself and go on and transform into whatever other being it will be. But the planet will be lonely without the vibrations of humans. So we feel compelled as Indigenous people to speak our truth, to share our story, to try and influence government and governance. And one of the things that the minimal thing that we want is to ensure that whatever development comes to our region that we undertake a cumulative impact assessment on how do all of those multiple scenarios brought together fully impact on the region, the people, the potential benefit it espouses and see do we really need it. So what we're saying is that a minimal condition that we are asking government for is a statutory authority to be able to have a little bit of objectivity in terms of if development is to come to our region, let's take it out there, let's get the peer review science happening, let's scrutinise from an industry perspective as to whether or not these sorts of developments should come into pristine wilderness areas for short-term gain at huge 
human and economic cost to the Indigenous people who have been the guardians and the custodians of this Fitzroy River from the beginning of time. That's very interesting. Now, you brought a case to recognise the the Fitzroy River as as a living ancestral being with a right to life. Is that correct? And and what would be the the impact of that? How would that change and help uh, you as guardians? There was a situation in Australia where there was a tribunal for nature. I think it was in 2016. But this was an opportunity by legal scholars to put a call out to citizens of Australia to see whether or not there were stories or case scenarios that could demonstrate a need for environmental justice or uh, ecological jurisprudence. And so this call was given nationally and I looked at it and thought it was a great opportunity for me to conceptualise the idea of how would I take a case not so much for the right to life of our sacred river, but the right of our river, our sacred river, to live and flow. So I took with me a a whole body, a whole team of learned legal scholars, but also environmental scientists that I'm working with. And over a period of uh, about three to four weeks, we developed a body of evidence for how we would present our case to the tribunal to to see whether or not the Fitzroy River from a um, political perspective in terms of the opportunity to have for the first time the tribunal, whether or not we had the opportunity to demonstrate that the Fitzroy River or the Marawara is a sacred ancestral being. It is the living system. We were arguing that it should have the right to flow. So we were bringing our evidence to see if our case had standing and merit in a tribunal setting. It was pretty amazing, really, because they had, it was almost like a, uh, a, a legal court case whereby we had uh, eminent scholars and advocates on the bench and individually cases from all around Australia were presented. There were stories from the Great Barrier Reef. There were stories from ancient uh, forest in Western Australia. And then obviously... We presented um, the Marawara Fitzroy River Council. So I presented the cultural context. We had environmental scientists presenting the body of evidence about why the river as a national heritage listed is there as an asset in common, that it is a wonderful asset, it is globally unique and it should be seen as uh, an asset in common that belongs to the world. Uh, Then we had other scientists particularly an an eminent uh, scientist by the name of uh, Vic Seminuk, who has been studying and working in the Fitzroy River for over 50 years. So he's got a wide range of experience as a geologist and a biologist. So he was able to present. And then, as I said, I had legal scholars who work with me to also develop a, a legal position. So we came with multiple ways to show multiple values of the river. We received a very extensive report in terms of the findings of the case and that has really helped us to consolidate uh, some of our thinking around potential strategic litigation. And it was very encouraging because, as I said, there were multiple cases and um, it was great to see the diversity of, uh, you know, Australian citizens standing up and presenting why their place-based areas should have the right of nature to live and coexist with humans. 
Right. What 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 is a tribunal for nature? Has has one ever happened before? Are they going to have another one? Now this was the first of its kind in 2016, and since then they have held another uh, tribunal for nature, which was based on the um, all of the different cases and st- stories that ca- come out of the Murray Darling Basin. I'm sure the UK listeners would have seen, you know, what's actually happening with our largest river system in in Australia and the the level of pollution, the level of corruption, the level of collusion that's occurring within this amazing system, which now looks as if it's not even a river that can flow. Now, you're active on on, on very many fronts, as as you say, doing doing a lot in in, in different areas. You talk about waking up the snake. What's that mean, Anna? Waking up the snake is a saying that we have in an my nation, my Indigenous nation, waking up the snake means how do you wake up the consciousness of the people when you have specific issues that you want to create a dialogue and transformational action on? So wake up the snake is a challenge. It's like a proverb or a saying in terms of how do you wake up the consciousness of ordinary, everyday people to bring the people with you? How do you create meaning and a sense that these sorts of issues that Indigenous Australians and Indigenous people all over the world, how do we share these stories with the world in terms of what we've got is, as I said, not just that Black Lives Matter, but we have wisdom, we have knowledge, we have a deep understanding that we perform at multiple levels as scientists, as engineers, as pharmaceuticals, as farmers. So this um, historical knowledge, this ancient wisdom needs to be factored into how we're dealing with complexity in 2020. So what we're saying is that how do we uh, tell these stories, share these stories so that we can open the hearts and minds of ordinary people to bring them on the journey with us to show that what we are doing on the Matawara, the Fitzroy River, is that we are developing a model for how we should govern and have better governance right across the planet. And so part of this is how do we share our stories? Indigenous stories or storytelling is the Indigenous way. It's our paradigm for sharing knowledge, for transferring knowledge, for holding knowledge, for valuing knowledge. So one of the big challenges is how do you tell these stories? And so, um, as I said earlier, part of it is theatre in terms of the Tribunal for Nature. But one of the other things I do is I've also written several plays, two of the plays that I wrote about the Matawara. The first one is a really interesting story. We had some scientists that I work with in France come to the Fitzroy River and they were standing near an area that we were having a picnic and they looked at me and they looked at the elders and they said to us, do you realise that Le Meuse is the oldest river in the world? And the the elders did not say anything and they just sort of continued with carrying on with what they were doing. Um, And the scientists were quite sort of perturbed and... and, um, Later that night when I spoke with the elders, what they said to me was, oh, that scientist said that the oldest river in the world is Le Meuse in France. You're going back there next week, aren't you? And I said, yes. 
And they said to me, well, what we want you to do is we want you to take some of the memory of the Marawara and you must travel through France and you must find the headwaters of La Meuse and you must kneel and say to the Meuse, if you are the oldest river in the world, you will be able to share with us what the humans have done. Because I told them that when I went to France that they've got all these beautiful rivers, you can't swim in the river, you can't eat the food of the river, everything's poisoned. And so there was an exchange where I then did that. I went to France, I found the headwater, I did the exchange of water. I also asked the Meurs if I could bring some of the Meurs back to the Fitzroy. We had a water exchange here. So then I wrote a play called Two Rivers Talking, and that toured Western Australia, but it also went to France and Germany, you know, Belgium and places like that. So that was a different way of bringing the people with us because it's an emotional hook. And then two years ago I wrote another play that travelled through Belgium and France and toured here in Australia as well, and it was called A Song for the Matawara because what I see is that as humans... We constantly take from the river, but very few times we as human beings give back to the river. And so I wrote a play called A Song for the Matawara, and that was performed over there as well. So the point I'm making is that when I look across the world and see what nation states are supposedly in charge, very few of them are. So we we need to find different ways to communicate and hook people on the journey so that they feel a sense of care, an ethics of care, that this story matters, that Indigenous people living in Australia, living on the Fitzroy River, who have been guardians from the beginning of time managing their estates, are now faced with possibly a a huge plan by the national and state government to possibly look at fracturing the Canning Basin, in order to extract a gas reserve. And what we're saying is that surely post-COVID we should not be continuing the old ways of doing business and that if Indigenous people on the Fitzroy River have got a plan, which we have and is just about to be published, if we've got a plan for what the new economies could be, must be, should be, then why can't we as ordinary people stand in unity with the Marawara Council and support the work that they're doing, get on their website, sign their petitions about why the river should be protected. Part of this is to let people around the world know that um, all of these things are important. So that's why we, um, we use different ways, you know, song, theatre, films. We're just making a huge film here in Australia um, called The Serpent's Tale. And we are hoping to globally launch that uh, when we launch our strategic plan for our dream and our vision of what the river and the economies can be. So we're planning that um, sometime in October. So if anybody out there is interested, please get on our website. And I'm sure Fergal will um, post our website. Get in touch with us because this is a magnificent film that uh, shows that how we have been, you know, guardians of the river, how we have new dreams and we want everyone to come here and be a part of it and we want people to get excited about this story because we believe that the solutions that we have are solutions for how humanity and mankind is to right-size the planet and move forward 
in the fact that Indigenous people have solutions that the world needs to wake up to. Wonderful, wonderful. Now, now I'd like to discuss your your governance model and how that's evolving. But uh, maybe just can you, what's at stake right now with respect to the Fitzroy River? Is there a particular project, series of projects that are unfolding? And can you talk a little bit about the, the status of those projects and how they would normally unfold from a governance perspective? And what are you trying to do to make the governance more to, to bring it in, in, into line with these deep values of, of custodian uh, ship that you, did, that you have? Yeah. Um, when I talk about the cultural governance of the Matawara Fitzroy River Council, what I'm talking about is six different Indigenous nations all coming to stand in solidarity because we are all guardians of the Fitzroy River. These are diverse language groups. And so what's happened is that from the beginning of time, we had a cultural governance model called the Wunan Law. And the Wunan Law was a regional governance model that ensured trade, that ensured ceremony, that ensured um, a whole range of different ways that we lived in harmony with each other from these diverse backgrounds. So what I'm saying is that what we have now is an opportunity to go back and reflect on the values, the ethics, the codes of conduct. How do we maintain our relationship with each other, to each other, for each other? So part of this process has also been a healing and a transformation of six independent nations impacted on by colonisation and the model that has come with that, which has been about invasion, which has been about conflict. So what the laws and the public policy has done up to this point has created a conflict between the different nations. And so first of all, we had to get to a point whereby we all agreed that the Fitzroy River or the Marawara was bigger than all of us and that if we were going to protect it and care for it, as we've done from the beginning of time, there was a level of transformation and healing that needed to happen within the groups. So that was a huge, um, huge journey, which is a private journey, but I'm just explaining to the listeners what does it take for true reconciliation, firstly, amongst Indigenous tribes and nations. So we reached that point. What we're saying is that Indigenous traditional knowledge is Indigenous science because it is knowledge that has been created, adapted and mitigated over thousands and thousands of years of living in harmony with the land, living waters, but also with our fellow non-human beings. So in terms of that, that includes a relationship with the birds, the trees, the river, all of these living entities have a direct coexistence relationship with traditional owners. So we don't see ourselves above nature. We see this as a symbiotic relationship with non-human beings. And that's really important because that frames the values and the ethics and the way we want to do the work we want to do and need to do. So I just want to go back a little bit uh, step, which is, When Indigenous people are born, we are given what they call a totem or a judinj, 
a non-human being. Mine happens to be the blue-tongued lizard. So before I'm born, that gives me a relationship that this is a lifelong project. As much as I am committed to the Fitzroy River, I also hold a lifelong relationship with a non-human being, which is this creature. And what that does is that it teaches us an ethics of care. And so if we start with that ethics of care, then we can start to look and be in the world a different way. So that's the first thing is that our relationship is one to each other as traditional owners, but two, our our relationship with non-human beings. So when we bring those into the fact that they are active players, the other point we said is that part of this cultural governance is the realisation that the Fitzroy River, the Matawara, is a like a living sacred ancestral being. It is an active actor in all our negotiations, all of our reports, and even to the point that many of my international and national publications has the river as the first author. So that sets the framework for then how do we engage with other people. The other people means that this river has been recognised by the Commonwealth Government as being of national value and national importance. So the Fitzroy River back in 2011 was registered as a National Heritage Listed Site, which means it is an asset in commons that belongs to all all Australians and indeed the world. So that's the basis. And then what we say is that we understand we are dealing with complexity, whether we're talking about development, whether we're talking about science, whether we're talking about, you know, a whole range of things. So what we do is that we invite partnerships with multidisciplinary scientists, with people who work in business, with philanthropics, with private investors, because in order for us to transform and shift from poverty to wealth creation, We need to have expertise that we don't currently have within our six nations. So we work very, very closely with a wide range of um, different people who believe in the story that we have and who are willing to make a contribution through multiple different ways to provide us with information so that we can be informed about the choices we make for our lives, with our lives, and to our lives. So um, from that perspective, what we're saying is that our cultural governance model has always um, had a space for collective wisdom, has always had a space to bring in new intellectual thinking, but also new ways of doing trade, doing ceremony. So as Indigenous people, we had trade routes, song lines right across this nation that allowed us to trade our premium products across the whole of the nation. So we have this history of, you know, doing all of these things. So from a cultural governance perspective, the first thing is we recognise that the river is our most precious resource. And so all of our uh, strategies, whatever they may be, always has to have the Fitzroy River as our focus. And um, it's an amazing place. And so many of the scientists who come to do their work also, once they get um, into 
the place, they understand these multiple values and they want to share them. And they can also learn to have empathy and be and see our world the way we do. I was really um, taken aback a couple of uh, months ago because one of the researchers who came up, and she's an amazing lady and she's doing fantastic work with our elders, she came in one day to see me when I was in Broome and she said, oh, she was so excited. She said, Anne, I heard the river waking up. And so what we're saying is that what we've got here, what we want to share, what we want to build our life and our livelihoods around is something that's quite magical. We are the oldest living culture in the world. We have an amazing Fitzroy River, which is globally and nationally unique. And what we're saying is that the the solutions that we have here are multiple. Like, you know, one of the things is around this area called bioprospecting. And I don't know if um, many of the listeners know what it is, but basically what people are starting to realise is that these ancient foods and botanicals that Indigenous people have been farming as part of managing our estates, we've got solutions for the world. We've got plants that have 30 times the property of morphine. We have plants that um, are natural antibiotics in a time of golden staff when we're quickly running out of solutions of how to fabricate artificial antibiotics. We have these things. We have been sitting uh, in this place managing our estates and what we're saying is that we want to do ethical business we want to do ethical trade and there's a great opportunity to bring investors into this region to make profit in an ethical and responsible way and we as indigenous leaders from the region are saying is that before we destroy this amazing river system and these amazing Indigenous people and their life and livelihoods, shouldn't we as the world slow down a bit and listen to the story that Indigenous people are telling the world and sharing the world and think maybe they do have the solutions for how to right-size the planet and take us to a different level of humanity that is so missing from the narcissistic epidemic of greed and destruction that has got us to this place today. What is a song line, Anna? The song line, song line is, an, is, an, is a story in song which has meaning, which sometimes carries the law, which sometimes can be a map to navigate through the country. So, um, it, you know, it has a multiple definitions, but the song line for the Fitzroy River is the song line about Wollongari law. You also have song lines which are maps in the cultural landscape that as people sing and traverse the country, they are able to go from point to point because the journey is mapped in the song. Can you talk about the river from the perspective, from, from looking at song lines? Yeah, that's a very good question about song lines, particularly for the Matawara, the Fitzroy River. There is one song line for the whole of the Fitzroy River. It's called Wallangari Law. It's a song line that talks about the creation of the river and how the river was made and how the ancestor, Wunyumbul, traversed the whole uh, catchment and as he was moving through the cultural landscape, 
he was naming the birds, he was naming the plants, he was naming the animals. And those names in all the diverse uh, Indigenous nations are still there today. So this is a magnificent songline. It's actually linked to this huge film that we're about to launch possibly in October called The Serpent's Tale. Uh, we will be launching that globally. So if people want to make the connection to the songline, this will be a very amazing film that people need to get excited about and be participants at the, uh, at the launch of this amazing film because it will show in film how we are still holding that first law, Walangari law. That sounds amazing, Anne. I'll make sure that we put information about that in the write-up and description of the podcast. What about power? You mentioned some of the cultural resources that you've been developing, some of the scientific work you're doing, legal as well, but you've also said that politics is important. And so what, what, what power, what, what is the legal situation? How, to what extent is your guardianship and custodial relationship, how is that recognised in the law? So at this point in time, one of the things that we've needed to do as the Matawara Fitzroy River Council is to, first of all, become incorporated as a legal entity because should we decide to go down a strategic litigation process, we need to have legal standing ourselves. So currently what the first process is, and today we've got our certificate of incorporation. We have uh, developed an amazing constitution, and one of the things is we needed to become incorporated as a legal entity so that, one, we've got the opportunity to attract resources and build our capacity, two, if we are going to pick up a strategic litigation in terms of defending our rights as Indigenous people and defending the rights of our uh, sacred serpent being, then we needed to have legal standing in order to be able to take a case to court. There's a lot of things that aren't recognised in the law in this country. Like you have the law, but how is it regulated and how is it enforced? So one of the big things is when we look at, you know, like I said last night, I was sitting on a panel and last night it was fracking. Two weeks ago, it was the failure of the Environmental Protection Act to be able to provide justice to the environment. Um, next week, it'll be something else, something else. So basically, power is very important. And as I said, the model we had prior to invasion and colonisation was an alloidal uh, title around absence of law, that we were all equal that we had specialities and we all brought them into how we frame our world and coexist together. So this has been there from the beginning of time. What we're talking about is exactly about power. What our story is is that 150 years ago we were living in abundance and plenty. We had scientists, we had engineers, we had the storytellers, we had the singers we had the music makers we had all that we've just written a report that reflects on this period of invasion from 1838 to 2020 and when we look at that and we see that we came from a world of abundance and through colonization and the theft of our land and living waters and natural resources what we have seen is that we went from a world of affluence and sharing and caring 
to a world of abject poverty and starvation. Where I live, we have the highest suicide rate in the world. We have young people as young as nine suiciding because they see no hope because all we've had from government and governance and power brokers is how our resources have been removed from us and people have profited and we in 2020 still live in abject poverty. So it very much is about power. So one of the things is, as I said, we are looking from the report that we have written about what does freedom mean? What does it mean to decolonize? What does it mean to allow our young Indigenous people to reach their full potential as human beings? And we have to say that in a sad state such as this, what we find that after 150 years of colonization, invasive and unjust development, that our people are worse off. And so what we're saying is that we think that it is now time to stop the invasion, to stop the colonisation, to redefine who we are as Australians, to rethink what does governance and government mean, what does it mean that every time we want to uh, enact a law in our nation state, we have to still have the royal assent in order for us to enact our own laws. So it is very much about power. We come from a history of peace, otherwise we would not have been able to live in harmony with each other for so long. There was definitely punishment and regulation and those sorts of things. But what we're saying is that um, when I spoke to you a little earlier, I said that I had done a PhD looking at four generations of my family my great-grandmother was brought into um, her community in about 1886 because most of her family were massacred. She was brought into this place where she fell in love with a beautiful man who loved her and gave her children his name. And from there was my grandmother, then my mother, then, my, then me. And now I have a daughter who is also going to have to shield this level of responsibility. So I kind of feel that at 63 years of age, I think it's time to really start to look at what does the new economy mean? What does governance and government in our nation mean? Can we consider what a just republic might look like? How can the citizens of this nation state share in the wealth creation that is being dug up, shipped out and profited by a few predatory elites, how can we do that differently? How is it in 2020, 60% of Australians still have not met an Aboriginal person? How is it that this nation state allows young people, 10 years, Aboriginal young people, 10 years and under, to be locked up in jails and prisons? for breaches of the law. How can that be? So what we're saying is that I think after 150 years, it is very much about power. It is about redistribution of that power. It is about equity. It is about principles of justice. It is about how do we, in this moment and time of COVID, 
having had the chance to reflect on ourselves and our nation state, how can we as Australians be allowing the federal and state governments to build a pipeline from the east to the west coast to cause the largest man-made destruction in the world and see that as the economic model for right-sizing our nation? Where is the justice in that? Justice for the environment, justice for our human rights, justice for multi-species. When is this going to slow down and stop? When is ancient wisdom and cultural governance being factored into new ways of doing business in our nation and across the world? When will the time be right that the humans will say that as citizens of our nation states, it is time to do business differently? The multinationals and the corporations have profited as much as they can. Isn't it time that each of us were invested in as human beings so that we can all reach our full potential and enjoy the life that we were gifted to live and do business a different way? Well, that's a, a, a wonderful vision, Anna. And thank you so much for joining me today on the sustainability agenda and talking about the important work you're doing, the research, the values of your culture, and I wish you the very best of success with your ongoing work. Thank you very much, Fergal, and thank you to the listeners. And, um, yeah, it's been a wonderful opportunity to share, and I hope Fergal will also make available our website because I definitely would love to hear and talk and share with uh, citizens of the UK. Thank you, Fergal. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.